Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, Denver, Colorado's boy murderer, Anton Wood. Just looked like any other kid. There's nothing evil about him. In fact, he looked kind of like somebody's perception of an angel-faced baby. You know, he, he was quite young. Welcome all to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me today. For those who celebrated, hope you had a nice Thanksgiving weekend. So before we get to the interview, I was asked a question a few weeks ago. If you could go back in time and witness a historical event, what would it be? I answered that question and then put it out to you if you had an answer you wanted to share with me. I, in turn, would share it here. Uh, I did get an answer from one of my Australian Patreon patrons, Michael Brody, who replied with a really thoughtful answer, and this is it. I think a lot of us would like to be quietly hiding away at the rear of the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository before midday on November 22, 1963. Or, watching over Buck's Row throughout the evening of August 31st, 1888. But for me, I'd want to be discreetly camped out from after dark on January 14th, 1947, with clear views over the vacant lot on the west side of South Norton Avenue, midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street in Lamert Park, Los Angeles. By my side, I'd have the irrepressible reporter Aggie Underwood, one or two of her best photographers, and some trusted members of the gangster squad, ready to see who pulls up. Then, the moment of truth, the murderer or murderers exposed, as they reflexively look up in surprise and shock in response to the distinctive sound of the racking of shotguns before them. The incandescent flashbulbs of the cameras 
freezing in place their guilt for all eternity. For a fan of true crime, history, and film noir, there is no greater mystery than the fiendish murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Great answer. Thank you, Michael. Oh, one more thing. If you have any interest in asking me a question or just making a comment about me or my show, (laughs) easy, folks. (laughs) I'm trying out a new app called Wisdom, and I'm inviting anyone who wants to come and talk with me on it to do so. My username is at most notorious, and I'll be live. It's audio only on Monday, December 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll put the link into the show notes just to make it easy to connect. Again, username most notorious on the Wisdom app. We can talk, I'll take questions, and looking forward to trying this for the very first time. All right, on with the episode. I'm so happy to have as my guest today, Dick Kreck. He is a journalist who has worked at the San Francisco Examiner, the Los Angeles Times, and as a senior columnist at the Denver Post. He is the author of the bestseller, Murder at the Brown Palace. The book he is here to talk about today is called Anton Wood, The Boy Murderer. Welcome, and thank you for coming on. Sure, my pleasure. Well, well, this is a really interesting story. How did you come across it, and what prompted you to write a book about it? Well, I was researching another book, and, you know, a lot of times I use newspapers as a source. And I kept coming across this case of this kid uh, who was accused of murdering a fellow hunter, and I just got more and more involved in it, and then I ended up researching him for a long time. Um, And I just couldn't believe uh, the way this kid got treated by the legal system. Um, You know, he was... (laughs) In those days, newspapers didn't bother to say alleged or accused. They just dubbed him the boy murderer about two days after he went on trial. Um, And so... He had a lot to overcome. Yeah, he did. So let's begin where you began in your book, the morning of November 2nd, 1892. Three friends, Alexander Baker, Harry Wyman, and Joseph Smith, left Denver for an early morning duck hunting expedition. Yes, north of Denver, about 20 miles um, and Anton was out hunting rabbits, which he liked to do. And he came across these three guys and, uh, he offered to show them where the good rabbits were. And so he and one of the hunters went off together and the other two went off their way. And, uh, and Wood, uh, saw that this guy he was with had a nice pocket watch. So he shot him in the back, took his watch uh, and uh, walked home in the snow, or it had snowed, there was snow on the ground. And uh, the police had no trouble tracking him and found him hiding under his bed at his house and arrested him. So he had met these three men out in the woods, 
and he questioned them immediately. He wanted to know whether they were carrying anything valuable. Right, right. As, as he pointed out after he got arrested, I never had anything nice. He had this beat-up old uh, long-barrel rifle, uh, and um, he grew up in terrible poverty. Um, and he didn't, he didn't even go to school cause it was too far away. It came out in the court trial. Um, and he just saw what he wanted and took it. Anton and Joseph Smith had separated from Baker and Wyman and Anton killed Joseph Smith alone. Wyman and Baker grew concerned when Smith did not return that night They spent the night in a tent, uh, wondering where their friend was. Right. And then they searched for a while the next morning until they finally found their friend's body with a single fatal bullet in his back. Right, right. But when he got arrested, he uh, took the cops to uh, show them where it happened. And he was very... Matter of fact, of course, he was only 10 years old at the time, um, and uh, I don't think ever really grasped what was going on. Uh, even at his trials, he kind of just fiddled with a pencil at the at the defendant's desk, and um, I, I, he, well, he was so young. I mean, he was just a baby, um, and although I got to say there was some question about his real age. His mother had several kids and couldn't remember exactly when he was born. And they finally settled on uh, 1883. Um, But he came from a very bizarre background. You know, his dad was a drunk. And when he would go to town on the weekends, uh, Anton would get into his beer supply and drink. Um, He was pretty much a loner. Uh, the musket that he used, you write, was a, a really old one uh, with a broken stock held together with copper wire. Yep. Uh, again, a, a, as you said, he was poor. The, the family was poor. Very poor. Um, I don't. The, the interesting thing to me is that um, he turned out to be as bright as he was. Um, I don't think he had much schooling. Um, but he was well-read uh, and very, very personable. Even the, even the fellow prisoners said he was a nice guy. What did he look like? How did newspapers describe his appearance? Well, he was very baby-faced. Uh, I don't know if he was actually 10 years old when he went on trial, um, but he certainly looked it. Um, his head was uh, shaved and um, he had kind of what well, looked like a kid, which is what he was, um, and just looked like any other kid. There's nothing evil about him. In fact, he looked kind of like somebody's perception of an angel-faced baby. You know, he he was quite young. And papers uh, pointed out pretty consistently the fact that his ears kind of stuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, but uh, later in the book, there are some photographs of him uh, taken when he was in prison and when he got out, and he turns out to be a pretty good-looking guy. Um, 
And uh, I, you know, I just, I sometimes I felt kind of bad for him. I mean, obviously he killed someone and that's not okay, but he was so young. I mean, there was a whole part of his, well, two trials, uh, whether he was old enough to know right from wrong, and they concluded that he was, uh, the court appointed the psychiatrist, interviewed him and said, no, he knows what's right and what's wrong. So when he had gotten back to his house, he he told his parents right away that he had killed someone. And you mentioned, I believe, that, that he told police that his father had told him the plan was to bury Joseph Smith's body. And he hid under his bed. Uh, the cops came to his house twice, uh, and his mother said he wasn't there. So then they went off, and then they came back and found him hiding under the bed. And the uh, gun was uh, hidden in his mattress. Uh, so obviously he knew that somebody was going to be looking for him. Yeah. Uh, he, he was one of eight children but he was the only one still living at the time of the killing. The others had died in infancy, um, except for his older brother, who had made it, I think you write, to 16 and had gotten in trouble, uh, been sent to a reform school, and had been killed there. Right. I, there was not a sterling family. So who was responsible for prosecuting Anton Wood, and how was he connected to his attorneys? Uh, you know, I'm not sure how, how the attorneys turned up. I assume it was public defenders because they had no money. Um, and uh, the, the defense, well, they didn't have much to defend. Um, and the prosecution um, went right after the whole thing about the boy murder without remorse and, you know, uh, so he never really had much of a chance to, to uh, get off. Um, there was no reason he should get off since he'd confessed to it and, and they had uh, plenty of evidence against him. But prosecutors never really had any interest in pursuing the death penalty in this case, right? No, they were, they were afraid that the governor would uh, commute his sentence if, they, if he gave him the death penalty. And at that time executions were done by hanging. Uh, and there was some fear that uh, he didn't weigh enough to hang. Um, so no, they didn't, no, they never, they never asked for the death penalty. So there would ultimately be two trials. The first trial, uh, the courtroom was packed. It was a local sensation, this case. Oh yes, absolutely. Cause it was in an, there were at that time there were uh, four newspapers in Denver, and they all covered the case very heavily. And that's where he came to be known as the boy murderer. Um, they covered the trial every day, described him in court as as being sort of distracted. And you can imagine a 10-year-old could not follow all the legal ins and outs of the case. Um, and so at one point, he would he uh, had a little notepad that he, he wrote uh, notes down in. Uh, and I think, I don't know if it was the first or second trial, but he had a little bag of candies and he would count them out while the trial was going on to himself. Um, and so he, 
I don't, I never got the feeling that he was real connected with what was going on. In fact, after the first trial, when they said, well, you're going to, you're going to have to go back to jail and have another trial. And he said, Oh, I wonder what we're having. I wonder if we're going to have pie for dinner. Uh, that's how disconnected he was. Yeah. Uh, prosecutors really went after his parents. Oh, in the courtroom. Yeah, they were vicious. They described her as a slovenly woman and, uh, the dad was only slightly better. And, uh, obviously they were poor. I mean, if you read this description, uh, of their clothing. I mean, that was as good as she could get. And she was practically wearing rags when she appeared in court. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. He came from a very, very tough background. Yeah. Anton was allowed to walk around the courtroom. <laughs> he'd sit down, he'd stand. Um, he didn't have much of an attention span. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, and sit with his mom. Um, apparently, you know, he was apparently quite close to his mother. Uh, even after he got sentenced and went to prison, he immediately started writing letters to the governor asking to be let out, so he could go see the quote the only mother I ever had. Uh, and he was, I gotta say, he was a very clever kid. Um, good manipulating the system, um, had a flair for writing. And while he was in, he learned, uh, he learned to speak French and German and, uh, became, uh, something of a, of a, uh, painter, although apparently not very good. Um, so he wasn't, he wasn't a stupid kid other than his, <laughs> his fatal shooting. Yeah, he definitely wasn't. So the first trial ended with a hung jury. Eight of the men thought he was guilty. Four thought he was innocent. Right, right. And Malone, uh, the DA, was, of course, not happy with that at all. No, no, that's not what they were hoping for. So how quickly did they decide to try him again? Uh, I'm not sure what the time gap was there, but the second trial was pretty much the same as the first. Um, the cops testified, the psychiatrist testified. Uh, I don't think anybody came to his defense. I mean, legal people, um, as, as we talked about, um, he really didn't have much of a defense once he spilled his guts after they arrested him. Um, and and then it was, I can't imagine what it must have been like for him after getting convicted to go down to the, what was then called the territorial prison. Uh, as part of my research, I went down there to look in their files, and it looks just like a movie prison. It's high stone walls, very bleak, uh, and it must have been, I can't imagine what went through his mind as he went in there and they shaved his head and deloused him and gave him a striped suit, prison suit. Um, and there he was. Although I must say on behalf of the prison and the warden, um, they kept him separate from the general population. Uh, he had his own cell. Um, he, I, I guess he went out in the yard for exercise 
but mostly he he was protected by the system. There were a couple of really interesting things, I thought, that happened during that second trial. One of the men, you know, friends of the victim, a member of that original hunting party, admitted on the stand that they had actually given whiskey to Anton the morning of the murder. That that didn't seem to be anything well because it was cold. And they told him, have a little whiskey, it'll warm you up. Why any adult would give a 10-year-old whiskey, I can't answer. Um, But they were very upfront about it. So there was an obvious suggestion that Anton might have been drunk. Yeah, could have been, because although he was uh, kind of a practice drinker, as I mentioned, he, he... got into his dad's beer supply while the dad was gone to town. Um, But, I mean, how much whiskey could a 10-year-old drink? Right. Dr. Yoakum, a witness for the defense, made a big deal out of Anton's diet. Yes, he drank too much coffee. (laughs) How that would affect your brain, I don't know. But he did drink a lot of coffee. I mean, several cups a day. Uh, and with breakfast and lunch and in between times, and obviously he was addicted to coffee. Yeah, you write that he drank 24 cups of coffee a day. (laughs) That just seems impossible, doesn't it? How could you drink that much coffee or hold that much liquid? It's interesting. You actually wrote out his his full diet um, in your book, and it basically consisted of coffee, eggs, and bread every day. Right, and bacon. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't say he was uh, addicted to vegetables. <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Yoakum also alleged that Anton's parents suffered from syphilis. Yeah, uh, that was mentioned in passing. I could never find any uh, uh, confirmation of that. Uh, that doctor mentioned it, but nobody ever pursued it uh, during the trials. But the suggestion by the doctors was that Anton's mom had syphilis while pregnant with Anton. Right, exactly. And that she somehow passed on the disease to her son. And that was likely the cause of his um, uh, mental capabilities. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that flew very far with the jury or or in the trial. Uh, it was just kind of a side note, and it never really came to anything. Mostly, they concentrated on his lust for nice things, um, and that's what they that's what they uh, stayed with most of the time. We will be back in just a moment. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So as you've said, Anton was found guilty and he was sentenced to 25 years of hard labor. Yep. Yep, even though he didn't serve that long. Um, but, I mean, 25 years for a 10-year-old kid. Um, didn't go to juvenile care or anything like that. Just straight to the penitentiary. Yeah. Uh, you go into detail, um, the history of that prison and some of the punishments that were meted out to prisoners. And one of those punishment devices was nicknamed the Old Gray Mare. Sure. Uh, it was a really a, kind of like a horse they use in gymnastics. Uh, and the prisoner was required to bend over that and given lashes, um, various amounts for various uh, missteps. Uh, I don't know that Wood ever got that punishment. He was a he was a pretty good prisoner. He did get involved in one uh, escape deal where they all got caught. Um, but other than that, uh, I couldn't find anything in the records where he was reprimanded for uh, doing wrong things while he was there. Yeah, I, I'd like to ask you about that. He was a model prisoner up to the evening of January 22nd, 1900. Uh, could you talk about that escape and how he was, how he was roped into escaping with the other prisoners? He just kind of, you know, he was by far younger than the other prisoners who escaped. 
and he just kind of went along with the deal. Uh, I don't know that they coerced him or what, but but uh, he he later said, you know, I didn't. I just went along with him. I, he didn't really have anything to do with the planning or anything. Uh, I'm not even sure if he got outside the walls. Uh, he might have got caught before they ever really breached the walls. Those other guys were really bad guys. I mean, well, I guess good guys don't go to prison, but um, they were really hardened criminals, which is another thing that that uh, got my attention, that um, he would just be put in with these prisoners serving life, and um, there was no separation of juvenile defendants from the uh, real criminals. Right, yeah. The, the prisoners who insisted that he leave with them, their names were Charles Wagner, Kid Wallace, and Slim Reynolds. Yeah, and Reynolds, Reynolds was the really bad guy. Was he the one that got hanged? I can't remember which one. Uh, yeah, he, he yeah. was the one who got hanged. Yeah. Uh, he and was the, lynched. And the, and the uh, paper said, uh, the uh, citizens had done a good deed to string him up. So, so yeah, uh, part of what made this whole escape attempt especially horrifying is that the, these men murdered a prison guard, right? Uh, William Rooney, right? And I think, I think the I don't know if they ever decided which of those guys had killed him. I, I just can't remember. Yeah. Um, so the three men with Anton Wood kind of tagging along, they left dinner early that day and, and Rooney, the guard led them back to the boiler room, which is where they worked. And while they were walking to the boiler room, Reynolds and Wagner suddenly jumped, jumped him from behind. And there was a massive struggle and Rooney really put up a good fight, but Eventually, one of the men choked him, and then he was stabbed by another, um, stabbed with a homemade six-inch blade through the heart. And Rooney fell on his knees, then on his right side, and he died almost instantly. Right, right. But that don't, was that Reynolds or was it one of the other guys? I can't remember. Well, when Wood, who would later be captured... Uh, was was brought back and questioned by Warden Hoyt. Wood first told him it was Kid Wallace who had done the stabbing, but then changed his mind later on and said it was Wagner instead. Right. So the escape. Um, Once Rooney was dead, they moved into the boiler room and grabbed the engineer, uh, who happened to be their boss, uh, tied him up. And in the meantime, a guard had seen from a distance Rooney's murder. And so as they were headed to the boiler room, that guard set off the alarm. And the escapees then, um, I think I have this right, released hot water from two of the boilers into an irrigation ditch. Uh, This is fresh in my mind. I just finished reading it um, today. So, so I'm pretty sure I'm right. The, the boilers, which were supplying electricity, shut down, and everything went dark, uh, which is all part of the plan. The four guys then 
blackened their faces with soot from the boilers and then made for the wall. When they got to the wall, they threw a rope ladder over it and made their escape. And in all of this time, Anton was sort of uh, following behind, you write, like, like a puppy almost. And they had to sort of drag him along with them. Um, but, but he didn't participate at all in the murder. He, he wasn't part of the, the planning of it, of the escape either. And he was ultimately exonerated by none other than Kid Wallace, who insisted to the warden that Wood had nothing to do with any of this. So once they had scaled the walls, they split up into two groups. Uh, Wooden Wallace went one way. Slim Reynolds and Charles Wagner went another way. And Wood and Wallace were captured first. And it, it had been a brief but rough <laughs> uh, time for them. They were caught while in someone's backyard uh, digging up turnips. <laughs> they were pretty hungry and eating whatever they could find. Yep, that's that's exactly right. And and uh, when I was doing research on the book, I went down to the prison to get a look at the cell house where they were kept. But in the meantime, it had been torn down and rebuilt, so there really wasn't that much to see. Um, although it was pretty interesting to see the layout uh, down there. Canyon City is a pretty nice little town, but the prison was kind of out on the edge of town in these bleak foothills. And the prisoners uh, were assigned to break up rock and build roads and that kind of stuff. They even had a farm there where the prisoners raised their own food. So really, it was kind of like a city within a city. And uh, Wagner, Charles Wagner, escaped clean. Uh, He was never caught, never heard from again. Nope, that's true. Uh, don't know what happened to him. They never, never got him back. I don't know if they made much of an effort, though. Um, in those days, uh, the the security was pretty loose. They used to do they used to do uh, tours on Sundays for twenty five cents. You could go into the prison and tour the cell blocks. Uh, and when I was interviewing the current current warden down there, I said, "Do you still do that?" She said, "Oh my, no." The prisoners yell obscenities and throw stuff. I said, well, maybe they had a better grade of prisoner back in the day. You can imagine. I mean, it would be like a zoo, you know, just having the prisoners on display and you paid to go stare at them. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So Slim Reynolds, he had been the ringleader and, and he had the worst luck of all. Wood and Wallace were kind of lucky in in the sense that after they were caught, they were snuck back into the prison at night to to avoid being lynched because locals, Cannon City locals, were gathering to do that in anticipation of these prisoners being caught. So again, Reynolds and Wagner, they were spotted at one point, and as they were attempting to flee, Reynolds got tangled up in a barbed wire fence. But, But Wagner got past it, evidently, and disappeared into the night. But when Reynolds was taken to the city jail, he was uh, surrounded by a crowd of 500 angry men. Yeah, I think maybe there was uh, some contributing factors. I think the guys who captured him 
uh, were not totally opposed to giving him up to the mob. Um, and then they hanged him from a light pole and left him there for a couple of days um, in in the town. He, uh, I, I have a picture of him in the book. He was a bad-looking guy. I'm not sure. I, I think he was there for murder, but I'm not sure. Yeah, Reynolds absolutely knew what was going on, and he begged his guards to, to shoot him so he wouldn't be hung. But his escorts tried to elude the mob, and they were in a, traveling in a buggy, and they had almost made it to the prison when the mob caught up with them and surrounded the buggy. And this was about 11 p.m., and Reynolds was pulled from the, the buggy a noose then slipped over his neck, and within 10 minutes of being caught, the rope was flung over the crossbar of a nearby uh, light pole. But, but the mob soon discovered that the rope was too short, so they spliced it together with another rope. So then they tried again. They, they started pulling him up, and of course, he was strangling. But suddenly, they decided to lower him down and offer him the chance to speak some last words. And <laughs> all, all that he could come up with is, is a request for a cigarette. <laughs> and someone responded by shouting, you can smoke in hell. <laughs> and then he yeah. was pulled back up. Yeah, I don't, yeah, he was a, he was a mean guy. I mean, um, I could see why Anton uh, might have been afraid of him. Uh, he was not a, a nice guy. Well, very few guys in prison are nice guys, but yeah. And again, I say, you know, Anton was so young and he, you know, he, he spent most of his, half of his life there as a, as a kid. It uh, must've been a weird way to grow up. Oh goodness. Yeah. Um, the, the way Reynolds was hanged. It didn't break his neck like a typical drop through a gallows. He slowly strangled to death as he dangled from that rope. Yeah, it wasn't a real efficient way to, to execute somebody. I mean, I've read other accounts of hangings that went wrong, the rope broke, or the guy didn't die right away and just strangled uh, at the end of the rope. And Yeah, I remember... They eventually got rid of hanging uh, when the electric chair came in. And uh, I think I mentioned in the book, the last guy to hang. They told him, you're going to be the last guy to hang. And he said, well, what good does that do me? Um, so, yeah, it was, and it was very often a public spectacle. People could come and watch the hanging. So would cooperated with Warden Hoyt, gave him the information he asked for. But despite that cooperation, he was put into solitary, basically at, at this prison. It was a dark cell in, in, in the bowels of the right, building. Right. Uh, he, uh, he actually became pretty close to Warden Hoyt. Um, even after he got out, he would correspond with him and tell him how he's doing and that kind of stuff. Um, and as I say, the warden was really, I think, kind of sheltered him and uh, made sure that things were okay with him. 
Why do you think that that Wood went along with those men? You mean in the escape? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think he just, uh, I, I just think he didn't, he wasn't strong enough to resist them. Um, you know, he just thought, well, yeah, they're going to escape. I'll go with them. I, I don't think they coerced him in any way. Uh, at least I couldn't find anything in the hearings that uh, that they threatened him or, you know, told him, you better go with us. I think, but again, I don't know why he even wanted to escape. I mean, other than the fact he was in prison, uh, he was probably eating well. And, and uh, as I say, he learned painting and he also became a pretty accomplished violinist uh, while he was there. So it wasn't as though he were idle, but as I say, if you were a teenager and there you are, um, apparently for another 20 years, it wouldn't be the best environment. You write that the, the governor, before Wood ever got involved in this drama, was actually considering pardoning him. But once this all happened, and especially, of course, the tragic murder of the prison guard, Wood was back to square one, that that pardon was not not being considered anymore. All right. And um, two, um, Wood had some people outside the prison, a very prominent woman here who wrote to the penal system saying, you know, he was a kid, he should be let out. So he wasn't without supporters. But yeah, that, that escape idea was uh, dopey. So, in June of 1903, another escape attempt took place at the prison. Yeah, and, and uh, Wood, uh, Wood, I think, turned turn them in, or at least alerted the prison that something was going to happen. Yeah, uh, Wood was actually working in the deputy warden's office when it happened, and he began ringing the alarm bell and then called the warden, um, right. and and the prisoners ultimately didn't get very far, uh, did they? No, <laughs> not at all, not at all. It's a, I'll tell you when it was. It's now a, it's now a minimum security prison, uh, but at that time, it was uh, it was as tough as any prison could be. Uh, they had they had a head count every day. Uh, they had to go to work in the rock pile. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned, they had these like 25 foot high stone walls. Um, ironically, the prisoners, uh, had to quarry that stone that they used to build the wall to hold them in. They had hoarded some nitroglycerin and managed to blow the lock off the front gate, uh, Right off. That was used. Uh, that was used at the quarry, and they they got some. And I wish that uh, maybe he did, but I never saw it. I wish Anton had kept a diary of his time uh, in prison. It would have been very interesting to see how he developed and changed in his time behind bars. In that second escape, they had actually kidnapped the warden's wife, right. who just happened to be visiting the women's prison at, at the time 
that this escape was taking place? Yes. Um, again, I, I doubt that uh, Wood had anything to do with that. I think it was the other three guys who, you know, the, I mean, the other prisoners uh, who did that. I actually visited what was once the women's prison there. Uh, and I can tell you that the cells were very tiny. I mean, I sat in one of the cells for a while and uh, I got a little antsy just being there for like 10 minutes. Um, and so, uh, I don't know what his life was like behind bars, but it had to be pretty limiting for a, for a kid his age. Oh, no, no doubt. Yeah. So a little bit more about the, the, the second escape plot. Uh, this time it was six men and what they did is they, they pretended to be ill that morning just before roll call. And when a guard um, and also a doctor and a steward went to their cell house to check on, on them. Three of them um, suddenly pulled out knives and ordered them to remove their clothes, and then they in turn put on those clothes as disguises. And then they kind of went through the wash house and the dining hall uh, before finally kind of meandering their way to the, to the main gate. And that was where they unexpectedly came across um, Mrs. Cleghorn, uh, the warden's wife. So using her uh, and the doctor and the steward as human shields, they, they walked to the gate uh, and the guards held their fire for the safety of the hostages, of course. So then these guys soaked a rag in nitroglycerin, stuffed it around the gate's lock and threw a match at it and the lock was, was blown off in the explosion. So they pushed through the open gate and then encountered a second outer gate and repeated that with the nitroglycerin, blowing that lock off as well. Then the six prisoners ran out onto the street and one of the, the guards fired a shot. Um, and the warden's wife thought that she had been hit and fainted. And the escapees... Uh, tried briefly to drag her, uh, but, but eventually gave up. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that faint was a, a, something on her part to, uh, to get away, you know. I can't help it. I have to faint. Right. <laughs> uh, then armed guards poured out of the prison after them, and the six men were all either killed or captured. Uh, within minutes. And Anton Wood was hailed as a hero. Yes, and that, that played big in his favor later on, uh, that it showed that he had a streak of goodness in him. Uh, and when he finally got out, that played big in, the fa in, the, in his uh, release. Absolutely. So, so can you talk about the circumstances that led to Anton Wood's release? Um, well, first of all, um, there was a woman named Mrs. Reynolds here in town who was a socially prominent woman. And for some reason, she took up his case and was constantly, uh, after the uh, uh, penal system, to get him out uh, and... Uh, ultimately, it worked. I mean, he, he got out, what, after, I think, 12 years? 
So a lot of it was was public pressure, which I think uh, would help develop uh, almost immediately when he went to prison. He started uh, campaigning to get out, uh, and there's a long, long letter that he wrote to the governor asking to be released. And he was, uh, for a kid who didn't have much education, he was pretty clever with words. Um, I don't know how his handwriting was, but his ideas were, were pretty well thought out uh, for a younger guy. I mean, he was, you know, even when he got out, he was, what, 23? Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he was very, very clever boy. You mentioned earlier that, that you didn't think he was treated fairly uh, during his trial. Well, first of all, first of all, as, a, as an 11-year-old, which he was when he finally went to prison, I'm not sure he should have been on trial at all. Um, as an adult, um, you know, now today there would be uh, programs to help him out and that kind of stuff. Um, and, but no, I mean, they were determined that he would be uh, sentenced for what he had done. Uh, they they pictured him as, you know, this out-of-control, rampant kid who needed to be dealt with uh, and not, I don't think they ever considered his uh, his upbringing or his background or that kind of thing. I don't think he got a fair trial or two trials. Um, they were essentially the same trial twice. And I guess I know some people would say, well, some people did say he got what he deserved, uh, but Again, uh, given his age and his background, I'm not sure that he fully comprehended what he had done or what the aftermath was. You you do argue in your book that, that in some ways, Anton Wood was better off in prison. He ate better, um, got an education, uh, which, which he wasn't getting at home at all. Right, right. And he wasn't out working on the farm night and day or around the influence of his parents who were not top-notch people. Uh, so in some ways, it was probably a better uh, growing up experience than he would have had on the farm. Uh, but still, it couldn't have been any fun for him. Right. You also write that Wood would later change his story in his appeals to get out. Originally, he had confessed that he killed Smith on purpose to get his watch, but changed his story to say that he had shot him ac- accidentally instead. <laughs> yes, yes. I guess he'd had time to think about it. He, um, as I say, he was he was pretty clever with words, and uh, he read a lot while he was in prison, and. I assume he kind of, you know, developed this alternative uh, reality uh, while he was there. But, you know, he just never really had a chance to grow up. What did he do when when he got out? You know, that was one of the more interesting aspects of uh, the research I did. Uh, he got out and went up to the Roycroft uh, group up in in uh, northern New York. Didn't like that. What was uh, the, the Roycroft group? It was the uh, Roycroft was an arts and crafts 
uh, kind of a factory. They published books, made furniture. Uh, he didn't like it much there. Felt it was too much uh, like slave labor. Uh, and he ended up going to a, a town in New York called Newburgh and became an, a, became a bookkeeper. Uh, in one of his letters back to the prison, he wrote about how he was doing really, really well and uh, married a, uh, uh, the daughter of a, a local politician when, in fact, she was the gardener. He was the gardener for the local politician, the, the woman's husband, wife. The, hus- the woman's father was a, was a uh, gardener. But Wood was always very good at polishing his resume. And then, for some reason, he left New York and moved to Wisconsin, and I could not find him. I, there, there was no record of him in public records anywhere. And I finally had to hire a genealogist friend of mine to track him down, which she did. Uh, And he lived a quiet life uh, there and died in 1940, um, never having gotten in trouble again, never had kids, which I guess is not surprising. His wife uh, lived long after him, and I missed by about a year of talking to her. A good friend of hers was in the church up there that they went to, and I called the church and said, "If there's anybody that remembers her," and she said, "Yes, we had this one woman uh, who knew her, but she, that woman died about a year ago, and uh, uh, so that was the end of that road." But I think it's interesting that he pretty much straightened himself out, and I don't think he ever. Uh, I, I could not find any trace that he ever revealed his background uh, as a prisoner or a murderer. So, so I guess he was reformed uh, to some extent. Yeah, I, I think so because he he never you know he never got in real legal trouble again, and had a he not only did he become a bookkeeper, but he gave music lessons. Uh, and was regarded in the town as an upstanding citizen. Uh, and so I think, yeah, I, I agree with you that probably the best thing that ever happened to him was going to prison. Uh, gave him a new outlook on life. Um, and I don't know what would have happened if he had stayed on that farm up there. Uh, probably nothing good. So while I have you on here, I'd, I'd love to ask you about your book, Murder at the Brown Palace. Sure. Uh, What is that about? Um, Murder at the Brown was about a a woman uh, in early 1900s who was married to a prominent local businessman politician. In addition to that, she had two boyfriends, and the boyfriends uh, met up at the bar at the Brown Palace one night, one shot and killed the other one. It was a huge scandal. Uh, that was in 1911. It would be a scandal today, but back then it involved a lot of high-profile uh, society types, and uh, that was a fun book to do. The Brown Palace Hotel is still one of the best hotels in town, uh, and uh, I did quite a few talks on the book there. People, people found that a kind of an interesting crime. 
Well, I'll tell you one one thing I learned in doing these. I've, I've written six books on on um, uh, local Denver history, and one thing I've discovered is people are no different now than they were back then. Only their clothes are different, um, but it's, it was a, it's the same kind of stuff. I did a book called "Rich People Behaving Badly," which was just that, and it's the same stuff. People shooting their mates, running off with their neighbors. It's the exact same stuff. It's just uh, we have this vision of people back in the day being so proper and well-behaved, and it's just not true. Absolutely. So your book, I'm sure, is available at local bookstores. If it's not there, people can order it. It's on Amazon, and it's in the local Denver bookstore, sure. Uh, Interestingly, that, that Anton Wood book, did not sell so well. I, I think part of the reason is that people did not feel sympathetic to him. The general attitude, I had people say to me, well, why would, why would he be treated differently? He killed someone. He deserved to go to prison. And I always say, yeah, but, uh, and that doesn't convince him. So I think a lot of people were turned off by the story itself without actually reading the book. Yeah. If you're an 11-year-old boy being fed alcohol by your parents, zero education, you you kill someone and your father has instructed you to hide the body. I mean, the the people who are supposed to provide your your moral compass haven't done it exactly, right? And and that's a rough hand to be dealt at such an early age. The picture we put of him on the cover just shows this raggedy kid with broken down boots and his clothes are ill-fitting, too small for him. Uh, and he's wearing this kind of beat-up cap. Um, and so it gives you a good sense of what he, what his life must have been like. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has oh, been interesting. my pleasure. I'm glad you discovered that book. Uh, it's maybe my second favorite among the ones I've done. Uh, and it's a story that uh, has largely never been told. When You know, one of the first rules they give you when you go to write a book is, has anybody already done this? And I could not find a mention anywhere of any books. As I say, I relied heavily on the newspaper accounts. Uh, and, of course, uh, Anton's recollections when he was in prison Anyway, I, it was you know, it's a pleasure to talk about. My friends are sick of hearing about it, so. <laughs> uh, well, well, not me. Great chatting with you. Uh, thanks again. Me too. You bet. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Dick Kreck. His book is called Anton Wood, The Boy Murderer. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. 
it can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.